Amen. You may be seated. So I want to welcome our, our guest, uh, Brian Bueller. He's going to be here for the next couple of weeks, bringing us uh, the first two parts of our message in Jonah, and I'm going to let him tell any other information that he would like to reveal about himself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, Matt. Uh, thank you, Jamie and team, for inviting us to spend these couple of weeks with you in the book of Jonah. Um, how many of you were here when we were here many years ago? Can I see your hands? Boy, there are still some of you that have not died yet. Um, do you know that uh, when we came here on staff, we came in uh, 1986, the year of Expo. We stayed four years. I was the youth pastor along with Doug Weeb and Scott Fortnum. This room was the place where we held many of our youth events called Wednesday Night Live. And uh, the room is a lot nicer now. <laughs> and uh, what we would have done for that screen back then, we would have thought that that was from like Star Trek or something like that back then. But some of the pastors that, uh, that mentored me are now gone. Uh, Bill Gates is gone. Uh, Jack Diamond is gone. Elf Orthner, who was here, is gone. David T. Anderson, who was on staff when I came, is gone. And maybe there's some that I am forgetting. But um, these years, those four years for us as a young family were really significant years because we had left Calgary, which was the place where both Myrna and I grew up and were converted and were discipled by some of you who are sitting here today. And when we left Calgary, that was sort of our leaving the nest and coming to the Wild West. <laughs> and we realized that Abbotsford actually isn't that wild. Uh, back then, it was a whole lot more conservative than even Calgary. But um, those were significant days. It was sort of my first swing of the bat as a young pastor uh, with a congregation that didn't know us from birth, that didn't know us as kids. And many of you took us under your wing and loved us as a young pastoral couple. Our daughter Annie was born here at the MSA hospital, and she's almost 36 now. So there's a lot of water that has gone under the bridge. Uh, I sense such a sweet spirit here. Uh, it's so good to be with you, and we're launching into a new series that will take four weeks on the book of Jonah. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would anoint me and all of my brothers and sisters now to hear your word and then be given the grace to respond with the obedience of faith. In your name we pray, amen. Somebody called Jonah God's little comedy, and it is. It is a tragedy and a comedy. It was Frederick Beekner who said that a tragedy deals with life being inevitable. You always know what's going to happen, like Les Miserables. And a comedy is always about the unforeseeable, that something's going to happen surprising, and it's going to be good. So is the Bible a tragedy or a comedy based on that definition? It's a comedy. Not that we laugh our way through the Bible, but that it's filled with surprises, like the woman who breaks into the dinner party and breaks open an expensive bottle of perfume and pours it out. 
Everything about the story is not tragedy. It's comedy. It's the unforeseeable in what the woman does and the unforeseeable in how Jesus responds. God's little comedy. Let's read. And by the way, when I say that, I'm not suggesting for a moment that I do not believe that the book of Jonah is historical. I happen to be one of those old-fashioned people who believes that Jonah was a real person and really was swallowed by a fish. More on that next week. Let's read Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, "'How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God.'" Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. But instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you have pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. If I were to ask you, even without us reading all four chapters, what is the big idea of the book of Jonah? What would you say? Most of you have been around the church for a long time. You've heard this story before. What is the big idea of the book of Jonah? Or let's say that your five-year-old granddaughter or grandson snuggles up next to you, Grandma and Grandpa, this afternoon and says, Grandma, Grandpa, why did the big fish swallow Jonah? What scintillating answer would you give? I think my temptation would be, 
Well, honey, Veggie Tales has a very good episode on Jonah. <laughs> Let's plug that in. What if you ventured a guess yourself? What if you said, well, in order for me to tell you why the fish swallowed Jonah, I'm going to have to provide a little bit of a backstory. What would the big idea be? Let's try this one. And I'm not saying this is the right one, but here's one. The story of Jonah is to help us see that God is not in the hate business. God does not hate his enemies. Or, to use another Old Testament text, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Or to use a New Testament text, for God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Which immediately brings up the secondary plot of the book, Enter Jonah. God's people don't often share the same sentiments as God. And when we don't, God doesn't just sit back and do nothing. He does stuff. And the stuff that he does is pretty amazing. Jonah knew that God didn't hate his enemies. And that infuriated him. I'm not going to steal Jamie's thunder because Jamie's preaching on chapter 4. But I will say this because all of you know this anyway. When God chooses to forgive the Ninevites instead of destroying them, Jonah just becomes unglued. He is outraged. And he basically says, I knew it. I knew this would happen. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, and abounding in love. I knew it. I knew that you love to relent in sending calamity upon your enemies, and that just burns me up. In fact, Jonah was so mad that four times in chapter 4, he says to God, I'm so mad I just wished I was dead. And once he says, I'm so mad I'd like you to kill me right now. Now, some of you are thinking, Boy, Jonah sounds like quite a drama queen. Oh, he is indeed. He writes the book on narcissism. Yes, you know, the whole thing kind of makes you wonder how Jonah got the job in the first place. I mean, on his business card is Jonah, a prophet of the Most High. And I want to ask God, did you not check Jonah's references before you hired him? Jonah wanted God to hate the people of Nineveh as much as he did. And when God refused to stoop to the level of Jonah's disdain, he freaked out. That's what the book of Jonah is about. Now, let's be fair to the poor prophet. From a merely human point of view, just take God out of the story. Did Jonah have reason to hate the Ninevites? Yes. I think most of us know that the ancient Assyrians were legendary in committing the most brutal and vile of terrorist atrocities. I could not mention the things in this service of what they did, how they treated their enemies. And it wasn't that long after Assyria's war machine came and crushed Israel that God called Jonah to pay Assyria a pastoral visit. He said, go to the great city of Nineveh. 
Its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, we would say in modern language, was still suffering from PTSD. The gruesome memories of what the Ninevites did to his family, to his people, were still very fresh. So when Jonah freaks out in rage, he's simply representing all of us good, evangelical, religious people who believe that we have a right to ask God to destroy our enemies. Basically, we're identifying with Jonah in this, that we believe that God should bring justice to the world. Judgment, recompense upon our enemies. Now, here's the thing that Jonah didn't realize, and we can't blame him for this, is that God would make sure there was justice. That God would take care of the Ninevite sin. But what Jonah didn't realize is this very God that he was so outraged with was going to one day become a man and allow himself to hang on a Roman cross where the sins and the atrocities of the entire city of Nineveh, not even mentioning the world, would fall upon him and he would deal with the judgment himself like all the songs that we have just been singing. But it does come as a bit of a surprise, don't you think, that when Jonah gets the call from God to go to Nineveh to announce judgment against them, that he says, no, I'm not interested. You would think this would be Jonah's cup of tea, that he would be the first one at the altar. Here am I, Lord, send me. I've already booked my economy class camel to Nineveh, (laughs) you know, And, Lord, if you want to know, I've already written out my opening line for my sermon of judgment against the Ninevites. What do you think? Listen up, you residents of Nineveh. You're toast. In 40 days, it will be payday for you. Yep, payday for all the cruelty you hurled on us. To hell you go, for hell is what you deserve. Or... A little calmer, if Jonah was alive today and God told him to go to a place like Nineveh to pronounce judgment, Jonah might say something like this, borrowing from modern pop culture. My name is Jonah, son of Amitai. You killed my father. Prepare to die. (laughs) Why doesn't Jonah take the job? Who wouldn't want to do this? Well, let's stop here for a moment and just reflect on the fact that the book of Jonah has entered a new place of popularity within the church. In fact, Myrna and I just attended a play put on by the East Vancouver Acting Guild on the life of Jonah, and it was entitled, are you ready, The Boy Who Preferred to Be Angry. Yes, I plagiarized the title. Last year, many churches tackled the book of Jonah. In fact, since COVID, I have noticed a trend towards Jonah. Either that's because there's some great commentaries on Jonah, and pastors are going, man, I need a really good four-week series. Or pastors are recognizing that never has there been in our lifetime as much Christian hate within the body of Christ, as there is today. Gloating over the destruction of our political enemies, 
and gloating over the destruction of our military enemies and religious enemies has become a national pastime for Christians. And for this sad reality, the book of Jonah becomes a very relevant mirror reflecting back to us our own hatred and prejudice as deeply religious people. So why did Jonah sail in the exact opposite direction from Nineveh? Why didn't he want a front row seat in witnessing Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0? Jonah finally had divine authority to express God's wrath against his enemies, but he opts instead for a cruise to the Spanish Riviera, to Tarshish, a place where the chronicler of kings tells us was a very exotic place, a place of gold, silver, ivory, monkeys, and peacocks. Those of you who have been to Gibraltar have seen the monkeys of Tarshish. Our task this morning is to find out why Jonah didn't say yes to God and to find out what God chooses to do about it, about Jonah and about us. So, point number one. Jonah doesn't do what God asks him to do because Jonah doesn't want to face what's in his own heart. Or to quote Daryl Johnson, Jonah doesn't want to feel what God feels. He has carried his anger for a very long time. And so his anger has become a friend. It's a part of his dark side, and he prefers it that way. And I want to suggest today that what Jonah does physically by getting into a boat and skimming the surface of the great deep, he does emotionally, and he also does spiritually. Because he doesn't want to face his own interior life, what we call our soul, he skims along the surface of life, sleeping away his responsibilities, verse 5, and hoping to avoid the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. So Jonah refuses to take the interior journey into the depth of his own heart. Really, it's not just Nineveh he's avoiding. And it's not just God that he's avoiding. Jonah is avoiding Jonah. But here's the question. Why? Is his interior life not a safe place for God? Could Jonah not have said, God, you've asked me to do something that's very, very difficult for me. I hate the Ninevites, and I wish you hate them too. But because you've said go, I will go. But first, you have to come into my hatred and do something about it. Why does Jonah fear inviting God into his hatred? Why is it? It's really a good question, I think. Is it not because he knows the kind of transformation that is both required and fully possible? <laughs> And he's not interested. And so he says, nope, I'm not going there. I'm not going to Nineveh, and I am not going here. Hmm. Where am I going? I'm going to Margaritaville. That's where. A 3.5 star hotel in Spain. You can catch up with me there. Well, God, 
uh, intercepts him before he gets to Margaritaville. Some of us might say, you know, the problem with Jonah is that he did not know his God well enough. But I'd like to suggest that Jonah knew God well. In fact, he knew God so well that he knew exactly what God would do. (laughs) He knows that if he obeys God and actually goes to Nineveh and preaches God's message to the Ninevites, there is a slight chance that the Ninevites will repent of their sin because God's word is so powerful and he also knows that if the Ninevites repent, there's a 100% chance that God will relent and will not punish the Ninevites. He will forgive them. He will open up the door of mercy. He will invite them into the family. They will join the Jews in the covenant family. And Jonah says, no way, not on my watch. I will never sit at a table and dine with an Iraqi. Because that's where Nineveh is. Nineveh is in Iraq. And so in a vain attempt to avoid the transformation of the Ninevites, which would be a fate worse than death for Jonah, and to avoid the transformation of Jonah, (laughs) he, in a vain attempt, boards a ship in Joppa and sails set for Tarshish. It was Billy Graham who said that whenever we choose to run from God, the devil always provides a boat and we always come up with a fare. Jonah doesn't do what God asks him to do because Jonah doesn't want to face what's in his heart. Number two, God loves Jonah. He not only loves the Ninevites, but he loves his wayward prophet and he uses every tool at his disposal to transform his heart. And I think this point's point's really encouraging for those of us parents and grandparents who have kids and grandkids who have chosen to take, at least for this time in their life, the rebellious path. We have children who are Jonah. They have taken the path of doubt or agnosticism or what we would say today, theological deconstruction. And what we learn from the book of Jonah is that what breaks our hearts as parents also breaks God's heart. But it's interesting to note that when Jonah says no to God, God gives him the freedom. He allows him the choice to go. He allows him to find a ship in the right port, sailing to the place that he wants to go to. He also provides enough wind for the ship to leave harbor. It seems that God chooses to intercept us only after we are well-established in our rebellion. Like the father in the story of the prodigal son. This breaks my heart, son, but here. Here's a third of the estate. This means that your older brother and I will have to spend months liquidating our holdings. I cannot write you a check. I cannot give you a bag of gold. A third of the estate means that you will humiliate us before all of the townspeople who will be buying up some of our holdings, pennies on the dollar. However, if this is the path you want to take, we will do it 
we will give you the money, and the father just lets him go. Where does he go? To Vegas. And he blows the entire thing on short order. God doesn't stop him. The father doesn't stop him. And the father doesn't prevent the painful discipline that will come when he runs out of money or he has to go and work for a Gentile pig farmer. There's supposed to be comedic irony there. And he doesn't step in when his son is starving to death, recognizing that the pigs have more to eat than he does. God says, you want to walk away? It breaks my heart. But go, Jonah. Away you go. Oh, here comes a good wind now. You're going to meet some really nice sailors on board. Do you know they're all going to become Christians? <laughs> Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. That's very interesting. Did you notice that God does not attack Jonah? But he attacks Jonah's false sense of security. The ship was simply the, the, the escape mechanism. The ship was the means by which Jonah could escape God. For us, the ship represents every inordinate affection, every method of dulling the pain, filling the void, or escaping the truth of our own interior life. The ship is God's temporary, or Jonah's temporary, God's substitute. And as we all know, God will not share his glory with another, and so he graciously reveals to Jonah and everybody else on board that both the ship and the sailors' gods are not reliable deities. None of them are reliable refuges for what they're going through. And here's what's really humorous about the melodrama of Jonah. Everybody in the story is more open to God than Jonah. Everybody's more repentant of their sins and more obedient to God once he reveals himself. In fact, when God reveals himself to the sailors through magic, through the casting of lots, or through the reading of their horoscope, it's basically the same thing. That surprises them when they go, oh. And when God reveals himself through the instantaneously calming of the sea, it says they repent and they make sacrifices to Jonah's God. They make vows to him. They convert. And later in the story, the entire city of Nineveh are going to repent of their wickedness. And they're all going to turn to God. In fact, did you know that even the cows of Nineveh will fast and put on sackcloth and ashes? That's for chapter 3. Come back for that. In fact, not only do the Ninevites repent, but their cows do. The whale obeys, the wind obeys, the plant that God makes grow up very quickly obeys, the worm that eats the plant obeys, and then the hot scorching wind obeys. Everything and everybody in the entire story delights in obeying God except Jonah. Oh, you're listening. We are intended by the author to chuckle our way through this. And then at the end to go, hmm, do I see Jonah in me? Final point, number three. We also, like Jonah, run away from the Lord because we discover something about God we don't like. For the last two and a half years, as I've been reading through the Bible, when I come to something that I don't understand, 
don't like, that is confusing, instead of me just leaving that difficult text and moving on to something that is more devotionally satisfying, I stop, plant my flag in the text, and I go, Jesus, I am deeply troubled by this. So when Jesus decides to, um, you know, curse the fig tree, or when Jesus calls the Phoenician woman a dog, I mean, there's so many things that Jesus does, and I go, Jesus, you are so enigmatic. Why did you do this? Or as I'm trying to work out my own theology on balancing God's sovereignty and free will, which is still driving me crazy, and I've been a pastor for 42 years. And I go, God, what about this? I've got three journals filled with questions I have for God that he has yet to answer. But here's the point I'm making. I have recently done a deep dive into the current trend on doubt and deconstruction within the North American church. By deconstruction, I'm referring to the dismantling of Christian orthodoxy or simply the act of walking away from your Christian faith having once believed at one time. We are told that 60% of North American teenagers are deconstructing in their faith upon leaving high school. So when I see some young adults sitting here, I just want to run up to you and hug you and say, I'm sure it's tough, and I'm sure you've got questions, and I'm sure you haven't worked this whole thing out, but your face is still turned towards Jesus. What can we do as a church to walk with you and help you? Like Jonah, many of us are questioning our faith and we are sailing away from the church. Listen, beloved, not because we no longer believe in God, but because we have issues with God in what he has allowed to happen to us. We are turning our face away from God, not because we no longer believe in the deity of Christ, but because we're wondering whether God is still good and just in choosing to allow certain things to happen to us and to other people that we love. Unlike Jonah, we're not leaving home geographically. None of you today are going to get on a plane and fly to Fiji, as fun as that would be. Hoping that maybe if you get to Fiji, like Tarshish, God certainly won't be here. I can be free from the hound of heaven, free from the still small voice. I can do whatever I want. I can indulge in all my fantasies and all my doubts. No, 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 no. We are way too smart for that. We have been theologically informed. We grew up in Sunday school going to Seven Oaks. We know that God is everywhere and that wherever we go, God is there. It's called the doctrine of omnipresence. Oh, we're way too smart theologically to think that we can get away from God by going somewhere else in the world. We believe what David said, where can I go from your presence? Even if I make my bed in the farthest part of the sea, even there I will meet you and even there your right hand will lay hold of me. However, we do run from God by closing our ears to his voice and hardening our hearts to his prompting and by distracting ourselves with a myriad of God substitutes. Are we still in church? 
Yes, many of us are. But we are like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We are still on the farm, but we are distant from the father. We are still on the farm, but we are filled with resentment towards all those reprobates who God chose to forgive. I've got a picture for you that I'd like us to look at for a moment. This is the story of the prodigal son, and it's also the story of Jonah. So the old man in the middle is obviously the father. The younger son on the left, who spent his inheritance in wild living, represents the Ninevites. But he has come to his senses, and he has come home, and the father went running out to meet him. And he said, quickly, make haste. Let's take the robe of somebody else's righteousness and place it on the sinful shoulders of my son. Quick, somebody, get a signature ring with our surname on it and put it on his finger so he is reminded that he belongs to me. Somebody, quick, let's put sandals on his feet. I want him to feel at home as quickly as possible. And someone, go, kill the fatted calf for tonight. We celebrate that my son was dead but is now alive. He was lost, but he has been found. But there's somebody that doesn't like it. There's somebody who's really ticked off that the father did not consult him and his idea of what justice looks like. And so when the older brother comes home and hears music and dancing and looks through the porthole of the courtyard and sees the entire village dancing and the father leading in the dance. It looks like Fiddler on the Roof for Pete's sake. He pulls a kid out from the party and he says, what's going on here? And the kid says, don't you know? Haven't you heard? And the older son says, no. Ever since my younger brother left, I've had to work late to do the job of two men. And the little boy says, ah, your dad has received your younger brother back with shalom. He's killed the fatted calf. And the older brother says, I know, I can smell it. I know the difference between goat and calf. And the young boy says, come on, put on a party hat. Come. Love the brother your dad has loved. And he says, I will not put on a party hat. And the father ends up going out to the older brother exactly the way he went out to meet the younger brother. In this story, we see God. We see God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We see Jesus leaving the 99 in open pasture and going out for the one lost Ninevite saying, I love you, I want you, I've done everything I can to save you, please come into the family. And he also goes to us church people, us fundamentalists, who have a very hard time with the idea that God will not destroy all of our enemies. And he says, I want to change your heart, I want to give you my heart. I want you to love the Ninevites as much as I do, and I want you to forgive your younger brother. Come on, come into the party. And the story ends with the older brother saying, I will not. And it's interesting, as we will see in four weeks, the book of Jonah ends with Jonah saying, I will not. Hmm. 
So what's the punchline of this sermon? We have a God who goes after everybody, and he's not just interested in saving pagans and those who have lived a debauched life. He's interested in transforming good church people like you and me. But what will be required is us opening up our heart to God and saying this week in a moment of honesty, Oh God, I have so much hatred and resentment and bitterness that I need you to do something about. Here's my heart. And then wait and see what God, through his spirit, will do. Amen? Amen. So, verse 17, it says, But the Lord provided a great fish. The Lord provided a great fish. The Lord provided. We've read that a million times. And the Lord provided skins for Adam and Eve. And then the Lord provided an angel to stand and keep them from going and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil again. And then the Lord provided a ram caught in the thicket so that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac. And the Lord provided, the Lord provided, the Lord provided. The Lord provided a great fish. And the Lord provided a son to die in our place. And so with that, we transition to this precious table. When you came in, you probably received one of these, which we still have to use. Both Jamie and I have tried to repent of this, but we can't. There are still good reasons to use these. Coffee creamers, Jamie called them. But can I say this? The Holy Spirit is here. Jesus is here. The kingdom is advancing. We've heard his voice through the scriptures, and now what he wants us to do is also experience his very real presence in a very mysterious way through the Lord's Supper. And so if you want to take off very gently the first clear piece of plastic and hold in your hand the bread. Paul said, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And then he said, is not the cup of thanksgiving a participation in the blood of Christ? Then he went on to say, that when we receive the Lord's Supper together, we need to be very careful that we don't just make it a matter of personal piety. That this is not just about me and Jesus. This is about us and Jesus. So when I was still pastoring, I used to say to my people every single week, please keep your eyes open when you receive communion. And look at the brothers and sisters around you. And maybe the Spirit will even tap you on the shoulder during communion and say, I don't know that person, but I'm going to go introduce myself. The only way we can eat and drink judgment to ourselves by eating and drinking this is by not discerning the body of Christ. So this is a highly communal event. Perfect, isn't it? for the book of Jonah. 
God saying to Jonah, I love those guys too, and I'm going to help you love them as well. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's eat this together. If you are new to this church or you've just come in and you haven't used these uh, in communion before, um, as you open it up, open it up very slowly. And especially if you're wearing white pants or a white skirt. <laughs> Jesus said, as the Son of Man, or as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be. Jesus died and shed his blood so that we and the whole world could be reconciled to him. He rose again on the third day and he is present, standing here amidst the candlesticks right now, wanting to minister the mercy of forgiveness to all of us. The cleansing of forgiveness. So it doesn't matter where you are, where you've come from. Are you a Ninevite or you are Jonah? Grace for all of us. Grace for us all. So if you've put your faith in Christ, and if you haven't, you can put your faith in Christ right now. You can just say, Jesus, I receive your love. I receive you into my heart. Come. And then Jesus said, after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this as often as you will in remembrance of me. The gifts of God for the people of God. Let's drink together. Amen. Matt, do we have another song? Okay. Okay.